The text for today's sermon is found in 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that now you would rescue people from despair and hopelessness because of the sin in their lives. And I pray that you would rescue people from coasting, indifference, a kind of cavalier presumption about the sin in their lives and that you would perform the miracle of awakening people from the dead and causing all of those who are born again to discern how to use Scripture in the fight of faith as a means of persevering to the end that we would not make demonic use of Scripture to destroy our souls, but that we would make godly use of Scripture to live. And so grant that I would be faithful to your word, that you would grant ears to hear and a mouth to speak. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question we will tackle today in our series on the new birth is, how do people who have experienced the miracle of the new birth deal with their own sinfulness as they seek to live in the full assurance of salvation? Or another way to ask the question, how do we deal with the conflict between the reality of the new birth, on the one hand, and our ongoing sin, on the other hand? How do you balance the danger of losing the full assurance of your salvation with the danger of being presumptuous when you may not even be born again? How can we enjoy the assurance of being born again and yet not take lightly the remaining sinfulness in our lives? I think John's first letter is the most 
carefully designed book in the Bible to address those questions. Consider chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this book is written to help believers have and enjoy the full assurance of their salvation. John wants us who are born again, who believe in Jesus, who have new spiritual life in our hearts, to know you're never going to die. What an amazing life you would live, wouldn't you? If you lived in the moment-by-moment consciousness, I will never die. I will never go to hell. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. It's over. Death is over. It's past. You don't go there anymore. John 5, verse 24, Jesus in the gospel says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So both John and Jesus want us to know that because of what Jesus has done and who he is, judgment is behind us and death is behind us. Judgment is behind us because our judgment happened at the cross. That was our judgment. Death is behind us because our death happened at the cross. That was our death. If you are united to Christ by faith, you have passed out of death into life. You have passed out of judgment into no condemnation. You will never enter into any condemnation. Again, this book is written because he wants us to be confident of that. He wants you to get up in the morning, go to work, do your work, drive your car, be with your family, be with your friends in the absolute confidence, I'm never going to die. I'm never coming into condemnation. It's over. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. However, something's going on in this church that he's writing to that's really troubling. And he's very upset about it. And he's got to deal with it. The church itself appears to be still in very good shape, but there are teachers on the horizon, perhaps in the midst, already. Yes, they have already been there. Some have already gone out. Whatever it is, it's threatening to destroy the assurance of these people. And it's probably threatening to destroy their assurance by offering them a way toward assurance that won't work in the long run, but works in the short run. Now, in dealing with these false teachers, he shows us how to deal with our sin. And that's what we're after. How to fight sin in our lives in a way that steers a course between presumption over here and despair over here. That's what this letter does by responding to these false teachers. So what were the false teachers saying that had to be responded to? First, they were saying that the preexistent Son of God... Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. 
Let's go to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. There had been no full union between the eternal, pre-existent, non-physical Son of God and the man, Jesus Christ. They hadn't become one. This false teaching rejected that. They don't like the idea of that kind of union between spiritual reality, physical reality, between God and between man. So let's read the description of it in verses 1 to 3. Beloved, chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. There's the word. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There are a lot of things we could go into on this heresy that was not uncommon in the early church. But I only want to focus on one one thing, because it relates to our issue. These false teachers disconnected Christ, the pre-existent eternal one, from the flesh. Somehow, they just didn't get profoundly unified. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So these folks evidently were not willing to confess that. And that's how you can know they're not of God. They didn't like the idea of the pre-existent, pure, spiritual, divine Son of God being in the flesh. Here's the reason this is relevant for our question. This view of the person of Christ not being united to a physical body, it's kind of somehow otherwise related to it, evidently had a very practical moral effect on the way these false teachers viewed the Christian life. Just as they disconnected the person of Christ from his ordinary physical life, so they disconnected being a Christian from ordinary physical Christian life. They didn't like, they didn't like this kind of union in Christ. They didn't like it in us. And they were reinventing Christianity so that you could somehow be spiritual, be a Christian, and not have it Show up in flesh. Make a difference in flesh. What you do with your body, your brain, your lips, your hands, your feet. Just get the heebie-jeebies when they thought about this kind of mingling of, of great, beautiful, noble, high, spiritual reality and the flesh of human life. The clearest place in our text to see them go to work on this is chapter 3, verse 7. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. So he's got these folks in mind here, right? We've seen their Christological heresy What they get wrong about Jesus, namely, the Christ has not come in the flesh. Now now what's he going to say? Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So what's he shooting at? What he's saying is, 
Beware of false teachers who say you can be righteous and not practice righteousness. Beware of these people who are separating being from doing. This kind of ethereal, spiritual status that you may have, it's not showing up in your hands. Beware of them. John opposes not only their view of Christ, that they disconnect his person and his ordinary bodily life. He also opposes their view of the Christian life, which disconnects the being righteous and the doing righteous. The fleshing out the thing called Christianity inside of me. In this group, they had a pretty consistent view. We don't want Christ messed up in the flesh, and we don't want this thing called being born again messed up in the flesh. And so they just separated the two. The flesh didn't really matter for them, evidently. Didn't really matter for Jesus. Didn't matter in the, in the Christian life. There was no real union with Christ and His flesh. And there isn't any real union in you and your flesh. You can be righteous and not do or practice righteousness. So that's the heresy. And the question is, how does he deal with it? How does he respond to it? And he responds in these ways. Number one. Chapter 4, verse 2. He insists first that the flesh of Jesus and the person of the preexistent Christ are inseparable. They're unified. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say came. It says, has come. Read it again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That tense means something, both in Greek and in English. Different from came. If he had said, he came in the flesh, it would sound kind of, that was a season. He entered into humanity, and there was a time when that was true of him, but not now. I got a letter from a significant church leader a few years ago that said he thought that was true about Jesus. <laughs> Just, that's, a, that's heresy, man. Wrote him a long letter. Told him to take it off his website. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is united in perfect union with the second person of the Trinity forever. He didn't put on humanity like a hat for 33 years, and then take it off and vanish into ghostland. When they saw him go, they saw him go, and in like manner, he will come again and eat fish with us forever. Humanity, mysterious as it seems, has been folded into the Godhead. He did not despise our flesh. Today, at this very moment, Jesus has a body that if you were there, you could touch with your hand. He has come in the flesh, and He is still in the flesh. The incarnation lasts 
forever. There'll never be a time when the second person of the Trinity does not have a human nature in perfect union with the divine. So, that's the first response that he gives to the heretics. Your separation of the Christ from Jesus, the physical flesh and blood person, is false. Number two, this is his second response. He emphatically denies the teaching of this false teaching, this heresy, that you can have spiritual being and not physical doing as a confirmation of that spiritual being. In fact, he insists, spiritual being, spiritual reality, the new birth, a new creature in here, must be validated by newness with this stuff right here. These lips, these eyes, these ears, the feet. This is where the validation of the spiritual reality happens. Verse 7, little children, this is chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. There's no is without a do. If you say, I am, and I don't do, you lie. That's what verse 7 and so many other verses, maybe 15 of them in this letter, say. The deceivers were saying, you can be righteous and not practice righteousness because the body is neither here nor there. It's really in the way anyway. And what counts is the be inside and not the do outside. And John said, the only people who are righteous are those who practice righteous. So confirm your being by your doing. That's what he says over and over again in this letter. Look at Chapter 2, verse 29, just up, up the column a little bit. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's where righteousness comes from. But the evidence and confirmation of your new birth is in the practice of righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The practice of sin is evidence and confirmation that a person is not born of God because John insists there is a definite, necessary, and unalterable connection between being and doing. He won't go with the heretics to say, there's no connection. Couldn't say it much stronger than verse 9, could you? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. He even stresses the reason for why that is. He says the seed, the seed of God is in you. If you're born again, there's a seed in you. And I'm sure the heretics would have been really happy with that. But John argues that this seed, I don't know whether it's the Word of God, that's called the seed in the New Testament, or the Spirit of God, that's probably the seed in the New Testament, or the nature of God, or some combination of the three, but whatever it is, 
When God causes us to be born again, he puts something of himself, his word, his spirit, his nature, in us such that this seed cannot make peace with practicing sin. Cannot. God's seed cannot settle down and be at peace with patterns of sinful behavior. So the false teachers who think they can separate spiritual reality from physical reality, they don't understand the incarnation and they don't understand regeneration. In incarnation, they try to separate the spiritual, divine, eternal Christ from the flesh of Jesus Christ. And in regeneration, they try to separate the new reality that's created from its manifestation and demonstration in life. That's response number two. Here's response number three. Thirdly, John rejects every notion of sinlessness in the Christian life. Any notion that you go a day or an hour without sin, he rejects. Evidently, the way that this false teaching was making headway and was working is that by disconnecting being righteous from doing righteous, they made it easy for people to believe they were righteous when they weren't. And thus they helped their assurance. So one way to advance your assurance is go with the heretics and keep separate the, the nitty-gritty bodily life as confirmation and evidence of reality and just say the reality stands whether there's any change here or not. Go that way and you've got easy believism and easy assurance. They would say, well, even if your body doesn't do the things that you're wanting it to do, it's not really you and it doesn't really matter. And so you are above that. You've been born again. The new creation is something other than that. And, and so the physical nature isn't that crucial in who you are. That was the way they were dealing with it. And, and so they made sinlessness possible. Because if you separate out this kind of spiritual, unidentifiable, ethereal, new thing that was brought into being by the new birth from all your daily living, you could persuade yourself it's sinless. That's me and it's sinless. And this, that's just not me. You might go that way. John's response to that is to, to take his guns and in three huge explosions blow it out of the water. And I'll just point you to the three places in the letter. Number one, chapter one, verse eight. If we say... We have no sin. We deceive ourselves. Now that word deceive is only used in relation to false teachers. So what he's saying is don't let their effort to deceive you become part of your own self-deception in which you persuade yourselves, I don't sin. That's evidently where they were going. And it sure helps your assurance if you can believe you don't sin. If we say we have no sin, we believe, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I, I was thinking about how radical that statement is again yesterday. 
have, have, present tense. If we say we have no sin, what? Once a day? Week? Hour? Minute? When is this text not true? It's never not true. You always have sin. Always. This is a very radical response to the heretics. Their, their solution to the problem of assurance is to disconnect all the problem pieces. And then tell us this, this ethereal piece that doesn't really have any connection with the body is righteous, sinless. And so, John just doesn't say, if we say we do know sin. He says, if we say we have no sin. That's number one. Here's his second gun leveled at this error on sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now notice carefully, John does not assume that if you sin, you're not born again. He assumes that if you're born again, you sin and you have an advocate. He assumes that if you sin, you've got a propitiation. You've got a covering, you've got an advocate, you've got what you need. That's number two. Here's number three, chapter 5, verse 16. We haven't looked at this one before, so you might want to go there with me. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother, now mark that word brother, that's a believer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, just zero in on that last statement. Why does he say it that way? Why does he emphasize it that way? Because he's, he knows his, his people are being hung on the horns of a dilemma that they shouldn't be hung on. Namely, if they sin, they're not born again. That's the dilemma he wants them off of. And so he says... There is sin that doesn't damn you. You've got it in your life every hour, every day. There is sin that does not lead to death, which is why you can see your brother committing a sin. You know, little invisible attitudes only. It's visible here. You see your brother... There he is, doing it again. See him. He's sinning. How can this be? Because there is sin that does not lead to death. By the way, just a little princess here now. This is not a sermon on that text, but this text raises all kinds of questions, so I'll try to answer two or three of them quick. I don't think he has in mind kinds of sinning. When he says, there is sin that is unto death, I'd be like maybe 
who kill somebody. And, and then there's sin that is not unto death. It'd be like maybe a little white lie. That's not the way he's thinking. It's not kinds of sinning. Rather, I believe it is degrees of rootedness and degrees of habituality and degrees of persistence so that the Esau factor comes in from Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, where Esau sinned against God's benefits so relentlessly that finally it's over. Remember my dad preaching a sermon on Esau looking out on congregations of young people, saying, remember, you're created in the days of your youth because if you pursue sin, you think you're going to repent on the last day, you will get to the last day and you will not be able to. And then he would quote that Esau passage, how he sought repentance with tears and he couldn't find it. It's a frightening thing to put off repentance thinking that later, once you've sowed your wild oats, you will do some repenting at the end and you realize you have no power to repent anymore. Why? Because there is sin that is unto death and you don't know when you cross that line. And God is done with you. He will never reel you back in again. And therefore, beware on sinning against His grace and presuming to go on day after day after day thinking, I could do it tonight, I won't do it tonight, I'll do it in five years, when in five years you will be dead as a stone spiritually and so in love with your sin, you couldn't repent if 10,000 horses pulled on your heart. So, three times, First John 1.8, 1 John 2, 1, 1 John 5, 16, all of them are John's way of saying, don't ever claim that you don't have sin. Now, with all of that in place, I think we're in a position to raise the question, try to answer the question that we raised at the beginning. How do people who have experienced the miracle of new birth deal with their own sinfulness as they try to enjoy the full assurance of their salvation? And my answer is, you deal with it by the way you use John's teaching. John warns against hypocrisy over here claiming to be born again when you're not born again because there's no fruit, no evidence, no validation in your life. That's hypocrisy, and he warns against that probably 15 times in this letter. And over here, he celebrates we have an advocate. We have a propitiation. We have one who is righteous and removed all the wrath of God and enabled us by bearing our judgment and our sin and providing our righteousness to make a way for us sinners into everlasting hope. So those are the two things he does for us. Warns us against hypocrisy over here and celebrates the advocate and the propitiation over here. So the question is, how do you use those two truths? And this is really where you should deal with the Lord right now. How do you use those two truths? What do you do with them? Because what I'm going to argue is that the born-again person spiritually discerns what to do with those two truths. and makes proper biblical use of them. So how do they function in the born-again heart? How do those two biblical teachings function in the born-again heart? First, you are slipping 
I'm going to paint two scenarios for you. And I believe all Christians oscillate between these. And hopefully we find ourselves more or less free from both of them. But in this room here, there would be people way off on this side. And there would be people way off on this side. And I hope that we can help each other. So here's the first scenario. You are slipping into a lukewarm, careless, presumptuous frame of mind in regard to your own sinfulness. You're slipping. You're just drifting. You didn't even know it was happening. You realize you haven't thought about sin and you haven't been concerned about sin for a long time. You kind of waking up and say, whoa, how did did that happen? You're starting to coast or be indifferent to whether you are holy or worldly. You're losing your vigilance against bad attitudes and behaviors. You just kind of slide into them now. And once there was a a vigilance, you you watched over your soul, you you had some standards, you put up some barriers, you fought the fight, and uh, your hands are limp and your knees are loose and you're just blowing in the wind and going with the flow. When the born-again person experiences that, which they do, then the truth of 1 John 3, 9 becomes very crucial for them. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The Holy Spirit in the born-again person takes that verse and awakens him, scares him about the danger of his condition so that he flies to the Advocate. He flies to his propitiation for mercy, forgiveness. He confesses his sin. Chapter 1, verse 9. He receives cleansing. He's renewed in the sweetness of his relationship with with Christ. He, He recovers his hatred for sin and he's restored. And the joy of the Lord again becomes his strength to fight the fight another day. That's the function of chapter 3, verse 9, in the spirit-indwelt, regenerate heart. The newborn person doesn't read verse 9 of chapter 3 and blow it off. Second scenario. You are sinking down. My guess is this is more common in this series right now than the other one. You are sinking down in fear and discouragement and even despair that your righteousness and your love for people and your fight against sin could ever be good enough. Good enough even to demonstrate your new birth. We all know theologically it can never be good enough to save us. But First John says, you're not born again unless there's evidence in your life. And you take that and you are absolutely undone by it. Your conscience is condemning you. Your own deeds see so, seem so imperfect that you could never... They could never prove that I was born again. That's what your conscience is telling you. Now, when the born again person experiences this, and they do, we do. This is, this is not presumption. This is despair. When the born again person experiences this truth, of this reality... Then he turns to chapter 2, verse 1, and he listens to God, and he hears God, and God says, My little children. Now, I had to pause there as I got to this point in my message just to, just to feel 
why John began verse 1 with those words. He really wants to deal with you at this point tenderly. There are times when we should be dealt with severely. And there are other times when we desperately need to be dealt with tenderly. And when he begins verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My little children. He doesn't mean the young ones in the church. He means all of them. He was probably an old man as he wrote this. And I'm getting to the point now where I can almost look out on all of you. Not all. And say, my little children. So I do feel tender towards you. I have walked through this veil so often. I don't want to beat you up in moments when you have examined your life and you can't tell if the fruit is enough. I know the feeling. And it's an impossible feeling. It's an impossible situation. There's no way out. Except that in the regenerate person, and this is why I believe I'm born again, God has, has rescued me again and again and again by taking my eyes off of my mediocre performances and fixing them on my advocate. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate. In other words, the word that John wants the despairing to hear is the word, we have an advocate. What's the point of an advocate? Is to plead the cause of sinners. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And perhaps he mentions Father there so that that too will feel less daunting than judge. We have a Father, Jesus Christ, and He's the righteous one. We're not. He is. So let me try to sum it up. John's warning of hypocrisy calls us back from presumption. And John's promise of the advocate calls you back from the precipice of despair. The new birth enables you to hear Scripture and use Scripture helpfully and redemptively. New birth doesn't use the promise, we have an advocate to justify a cavalier attitude towards sin. You say this again now. The way the Bible uses 1 John is not to say, I have an advocate, let us sin, that grace may abound, advocate. That voice is not the voice of the new creature. So you know whether you're born of God as to whether you respond to this verse that way. That's what I meant when I closed the service the way I did last week. If you hear God hold out his advocacy to you and you say, thank you, I will go sin some more. You're not responding as a born again person. But if you take it in trembling hand and say, again, again, you will hold this out to me. That's a good sign. The new birth doesn't respond to the warning, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning by using it to pour gasoline on the fires of despair. If you're, if your heart, if you're despairing and you're trembling that you don't know if you have the fruit or the evidence in your life that you're born again and then you read 3.9 and you use it to kill yourself, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's not the new birth. That's not the new creature in Christ responding. So my answer to how we deal with our sin as we try to enjoy assurance is that the new person within discerns spiritually 
how to use warnings of hypocrisy and assurances of advocacy. It knows, it, it discerns how to use them. It knows how to move between them. It doesn't become presumptuous and it doesn't become despairing. So I close by simply praying, Lord, grant that in this room and these rooms this weekend, our new birth would be confirmed by our responses to the Word of God. May He grant us to embrace the warning and may He grant us to embrace the comfort so that we can indeed grow in our capacity to enjoy the full assurance of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, both the new birth and the assurance that we have it is a gift. I don't make it happen. We don't make it happen. It is a miracle. It is wrought by the Spirit. And I ask you to both provide the new birth on this weekend in dozens of people who've not been born again before and for hundreds, Lord, maybe thousands, there would rise a new, sweet, deep, unshakable assurance that we are born of God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.